Welcome to another episode of Nat Bar Brews. My name is Andy. I'm a brewer and beer lover based here in Cardiff in beautiful Wales in the UK. And Nant Vauer Brews is the name of my brewery. It's also the name of this podcast. Nant Vauer is a Welsh phrase. It means uh, big brook or big stream. And I like to think of this podcast as a an unending stream of brilliant stories and great people and a slightly odd take on beer. Beer is always involved, but we go to all different types of places. But these episodes, I have to say, are probably my favourite type because I get to meet and chat to a brewer and a founder of microbrewery, someone who's really kind of built their life and their career around beer. And I just, I love that. I love finding out the stories about why it's happened. So anyway, enough of the intro. Let's meet John Jackson, who is the founder of Wild Parrot Brewing in Pasadena in California. John, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And John has done me the honor of having a beer at one o'clock in the afternoon, which wasn't too much of a struggle, was it? I actually have, I have a, I have a second one here just lined up in case <laughs> this goes long. Yeah. Now this will be interesting because I'm, uh, we open in about two hours and we're a little short on staff right now. So I will be bartending later on. So we'll see how this works out. Okay. So tell me what you're drinking. So that's interesting in its own right. Well, I only had a couple of choices in my fridge. So what I've got right here, and I, I actually don't even know how to pronounce this brewery. I, I think it's Societe. It's from Orange County. It's a best beer clocking in at uh, 4.6%. The other option, um, a guy from uh, the brewery spelled B-R-U-E-R-Y brought over a bottle of it was like 18 percent imperial vanilla stout and so i wasn't going to make it through 45 minutes if we did it that way the interview would have gone just quite a strange place i think it would be interesting to do that one time but yeah not today thank you <laughs> right thank you for not doing that <laughs> and uh i am drinking a very very welsh beer so this is uh bendigay fran which is from bragdiclu which is a brewery uh in snowdonia so, you know, Snowden is the tallest mountain in Wales. And this was a few, I got it a few miles from there. Lovely little brewery, just nice. two guys in a little uh, lockup unit on an industrial estate making fantastic beer. But cool. I know that you make fantastic beer as well, because I've been doing a bit of digging around, looking at the reviews of Wild Parrot, and you get some glowing <laughs> reviews. I mean, the people love your beer and they love your brewery. So, you know, you must be very proud of it. Tell, tell us the story. How did it come about? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So we'll take it back to the beginning, right? So uh, let's say about 13 years or so ago, uh, it was a homebrew shop that doesn't exist in um, in Los Angeles. So Eagle Rock, which is a neighborhood in Northeast Los Angeles, on the weekends there, they did learn how to homebrew with extract. So like I'm sure many people you've spoken with uh, started the homebrew route, five-gallon batches, and did that for, well, in the end, I ended up doing it for about a dozen years. But uh, until the, the, the grain that um, sprouted into the brewery, uh, that was probably four or five years. You start homebrewing beer, and then we have little parties on our, on our block. Memorial Day, which is American holiday in the spring, we shut down our block. And pretty quickly, I started wheeling out uh, our four-tap uh, kegerator to the sidewalk. Love and it. that became a whole thing. So we started doing a fall version. We called it Blocktoberfest. It was amazing how you would see all the neighbors and all the friends, which in a block that's fully shut down, everyone's gathering around the beer, right? Yeah. And so uh, my wife and I were like, this is this is pretty cool. Um, I wasn't super into the long-term prospects of my, my career at the time and somehow convinced my wife to take a few steps in the direction of doing something more professional. That took a really long time, which I think that was to my benefit because if there was kind of the, the big jumping off points, 
my wife had been a, bit, a little bit more skeptical of things. After about four or five years of home brewing, I, I went and did a course out in Colorado. A man named Tom Hennessy, he's kind of a godfather of, of small brewers on a budget. Colorado Boy Brewery Immersion Course. So for folks that are looking to start a brewery, I know they've got international students there as well. This guy basically teaches you brewery business and takes you through some of the, the brewing processes, uh, working around the brewery. It's, it's one-on-one. It's three days. It's quick. And it's about, in about the most beautiful place on earth also in, on the western slope of the Colorado Rockies. I want to do this course. You've sold it to me yeah. already in 30 seconds. Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's awesome. I, and, and, and I'll tell you, if, if we hadn't, if I, I did it by myself, but if, if I hadn't done it, the brewery wouldn't be open today. I don't know how many alumni he has, but I'm going to say 100 or so, and it's a pretty tight-knit group. Um, so if you've got an issue, any kind of question, you throw it out to the group and they'll answer it with their ex- experience. Was there um, one so moment did... on that course, was there one moment yeah. where you, where it kind of dawned on you, A, what, how big a challenge it was going to be, but, but a kind of moment of learning where you thought, no, I can do this. And that's just unlocked it for me. Is, was there one thing that really stuck with you from that course? Um, it, I don't think so. I think what, what did stick with me was kind of the, the business systems there. Concentrate on your tap room sell as much beer as you possibly can as pints across your bar distribution is a uh it's a volume game and you know you're, you're you're playing with the big boys so creating something concentrating on your tap room making that a desirable place to be the good, good customer service and the beer menu catering to your local customers that's what he focused on and that's what we're doing and i think uh that was my big takeaway at least and i think it, it definitely has served us well that makes perfect sense. And it's funny you mentioned that because um, there's a, uh, a a tap room that was just an off license here in Cardiff um, run by a, a lovely guy called Trev. It's called uh, Pop and Hop. So I mentioned it quite a lot on the podcast. And he is going through this kind of change where the tap room is becoming his the, the main source of, of income. And it almost kind of launched the tap room side of it by mistake. But it makes perfect sense you saying about that, about because it's getting people together and drinking, isn't it? You know, coming in to buy beer in an off license is never going to be as community a feel. It's a transactional thing. You go in and however great the range is, there's nothing like sitting down with people, with local people and having a beer. So that I'm really I'm going to pass on. I'm, I'm sure Trevor will have a listen to this anyway. But it's really interesting that that, that is the one thing you honed in on is create that community feel and serve your locals i think that's absolutely brilliant yeah yeah uh he had the concept called the oyster the oyster is kind of a combination of all the things that make make a, a brewery inviting so it you know it's as small as the music and the decoration but but you know how you talk with customers the vibe you create all that stuff so making the oyster a place that people really want to go to and you know you can have good to mediocre beer but if you've got a great oyster it'll still bring people in. having great beer also helps obviously but at a local scale, you know, you're, you're a little, the people are a little bit more forgiving on certain qualities. Well, they're rooting for you, aren't they? If you create a spot that people want to go, then, and it reminds me, there's a friend of mine who's a, a stand-up comedian, and he always tells this story, and it makes total sense when you think about it. But, you know, people will say to him, well, okay, you're, you're quite funny, but I would never have thought that you'd be someone that would get up on stage and tell jokes. He said, what you've got to remember is when you pay money to go and see a comedian, you're expecting to laugh. You want to laugh. You want to have a good time. So I don't, you you know, I can be half as funny as you, but they paid to see me. So they're going to want to laugh. So I'm onto a winner already. And I think it's the same with a, with a brewery where if, or or a tap room, if you set up a nice space and people had a good experience in the past, 
then they go there wanting to like your beer and they'll find a reason to like it, right? Yeah, totally. No, I, I think that's a great point. And, and then brewery customers in general are, they're, they're coming there to have fun. So there's a lot of businesses where people are coming in, you know, and it's going to be a pain in the ass. Any type of business, dentist. Like a um, DIY store. Nobody wants to be doing DIY. And you're going no, in there no, thinking, ah, no. oh, I'm not even going to be able to do this, let alone find the things that I need. You're already in a bad mood. Yeah, yeah. You want to get in now as quick as possible. Your priorities are, you know, <laughs> speed and cost. When you already have people who are coming in for a good time, it helps out quite a bit. So that, with the brewery stuff, uh, getting started, I took that course like eight years ago. So my daughter, who's in third grade now, eight years old, she was a newborn when I took that course. So it took that long between kind of developing the business plan, funding, the location search, the permitting, the construction and all that from that course to opening was, uh, yeah, it was eight years. Wow. Well, congratulations on, you know, sticking <laughs> it through. Was it, what kept you going at that? When I mean, that must've been tough when you're finding, you're finding it hard to find a location and there's so many hoops to jump through. Was it yeah. that, that going back to that Blocktober thing and thinking, I can, if I can just create that same kind of vibe, then it's all going to be worth it. Is that what kept you going? Definitely part of that. Yeah. You know, and you tell people your plans. So people are always asking about it. So you do kind of feel a certain amount of pressure to keep going. And then also kind of the incrementalness of it all, right? So you take it step by step. First, you're thinking, okay, what's, what's the money side? How are we going to, how are we going to get enough money to make this work? Okay. Now, once you've got that solidified, the location search, you know, you're not biting off the whole thing all at once. If you did, I think you'd, you'd never get it done. But uh, yeah, if you take it step by step, you're focusing on that. You get you got your eyes on that grand prize, but you really got to figure out the next step um, before you keep on going. Okay, so what was or what has been the hardest challenge between that moment of I think I want to do this and kind of where you are today? What's been the most challenging part? Yeah, I'd say there's probably two parts of that. Prior to opening, it was uh, the local permitting process. We're in Pasadena, a city adjacent to Los Angeles. So we're in a metropolitan area of 10 million people, but our city has, let's say, 200,000 people. It's kind of known for uh, its history. It has the Rose Bowl, which is an important American football yeah. stadium. There's a, uh, and we have a parade that's associated with it. But the city is also kind of known for, let's say, tough regulations. The building department nearly crushed my soul with um, <laughs> getting through, you know, it's... It, the, the project in the end, it's it's not a complicated thing, but it took a year to get the, the local permits to the building department to start construction. So that was like very painful. And actually before that, we signed our lease in January of 2020. So about six weeks before the lockdown here. So that changed things quite a bit as well. Um, we had more extensive renovation plans and we we paused for a few months to see if we even want to do it. Like like I said, our business model is pouring pints across a bar, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if people are literally not allowed to go inside bars, yeah, there's no end in sight. Like, what does that mean for a business that's fully dependent on that? And then I guess operationally now, I'd say staffing on. We're a small business. I'm extremely hands-on. My wife is a 50% owner, but she's got she got the job that pays money, I'll say. Um, right. So a day, a day job. Okay. Um, so, but, but she'll be, she'll be helping out the bar if need be. And because we're a small business, we don't have a ton of employees. So if someone quits or is fired or can't make it in, it falls back on you. And that, that makes for some extremely long days and weeks. Yeah, no, I bet. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned the staffing because that's, that's an angle I definitely want to cover in the podcast. Uh, I saw a tweet the other day with someone saying, look, that's the side that we don't hear about with the beer industry is, you know, what it's like to be a bartender, 
a bar manager and and you you do know that side of it because you're you're doing that like you said after this interview you're going to do a shift bartending like what what is that like it's it's a job that's romanticized but yeah. from what i hear it's tough tell tell us a bit about the bartending side of it yeah yeah so um i've only bartended prior to this i bartended once in my life and that was almost 20 years ago that was in ireland me and my buddy went to ireland to um we thought we could just show up and get jobs um <laughs> long story short two weeks after we landed we, had, we were in cork and i lucked into a bartending job um, but i only did that for like three months and th that was kind of low-key yeah can you do um, a shamrock and a guinness <laughs> you know what i think the, the top seller there it might have been guinness but budweiser was was also the, uh, the oh, big right. seller there okay yeah no, you can't do a shamrock um, in the top of a budweiser That's no sure. not enough fun no, on I, that <laughs> <laughs> and I totally, they, they wanted me to pour the, the Irish coffees with the, the creams, you know, beautifully oh, yeah. uh, over the on top. spoon and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, that was just not happening. That no. was not happening. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just uh, pour you a pint of Budweiser. I'll do that. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> just smile with my American accent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, bartending is an extremely tough job. And, I, and to your point about the romanticization of it, family are always asking like, you know, no, this, you know, throw me back there. I can help out. No, there's a significant amount of work that's not going to the tap, yeah. pouring a beer and hand it to the customer. There's the initial setup. You have to get everything ready for service. You're really managing the customers and you're the, the face of the company. So when it's busy, you got to keep your cool, which is a lot easier said than done. You're going to have to deal with unruly patrons. You're not just behind the bar. You're, you're going to tables, you're clearing tables, you're checking bathrooms, all that kind of stuff. And then the whole time you're on your feet. So from 3 p.m. To, to 10 p.m. on weekdays, you could be standing up for like seven hours and it's concrete floors. So it, there's just kind of the physical nature to it all. And then when it gets busy, oh my goodness. I mean, you're, it's nonstop and you get behind on glassware. You could run out of glasses. So yeah, I, I have a huge amount of respect for bartenders. On busy nights, you, you make good money. So that's the plus side. It's a very desirable job. So when we when we advertise for bartending jobs, we get a, a ton of resumes. But you know, there's a difference between being a bartender and then what we call a beer tender because you're here you're focused on craft beer and we also have wine and cider. But you know, mixologists are a different breed than people who are at a brewery. You have some quite adventurous drinks on your menu. So I want to talk to you about the Mars beer in a bit. Yeah. But um, I was looking, yeah, looking on your on your website, looking on your reviews, and uh, someone kind of posted a glowing review of a, a cider that had a, something around the rim of the glass. And it was like some kind of spice or something. And it looked incredible. Yeah. And so, you know, talk me through some of your more adventurous brews or serving techniques. Sure, yeah. Um, so uh, the way that things work in California, just take a step back, is that um, breweries are allowed to serve ciders and wine if they have uh, a kitchen, serve food. Okay. So we have a small kitchen that allows us to do the, the cider and the wine. Very few breweries around do that because honestly, kitchens, getting back to the staffing side, yeah. complete pain in the ass. So we, we purchased the, the cider and the wine from others, making ciders a winemaker's license in California. But uh, yeah, I think you're referring to a tahine rim. So that, that's it. Yeah, I, I believe it's kind of more of a Southern California thing, more known in the Latino community. Let's say a little peppery, a little salty. It's stuck on the rim with kind of a sweet liquid. Okay. So people will kind of lick the rim and then drink their, uh, drink their drink. It's also used in uh, micheladas. So micheladas are kind of like the beer version of a Bloody Mary, um, but it's also a Latino thing. So it's uh, we make our own 
in-house. It's uh, tomato juice and fresh squeezed lime juice, which we learned very early on. It's got to be a fresh squeezed lime juice because we made that mistake. Um, Worcestershire sauce and hot sauce. Tomato-y, little spicy, citrusy. And it's delicious. I was not a fan of them. In fact, I was actually going to get a can of Michelada as my beer for this um, for this podcast, uh, but I ran out of time. So what beer do you have? Um, typically, you know, an American lager. We also have a Mexican amber lager on right now that people will use. But honestly, I think we've had customers make Micheladas out of every single beer we have. Okay. So we'll do it with the IPA. We had a passion fruit weed on for a while that was very popular. So people would do it with that. Yeah, so it's, try, it's a customer choice. Try it with a stout. That would be interesting. <laughs> like, like a Sunday dinner or something. Um, yeah. Wow, okay. So yeah, look, tell me about this Mars beer. There's so much about this story that I love. Tell us the story. Pasadena, like I said, is known for its history, but it's also known for science. So we have uh, Caltech University here, which is pretty well known across the world as a leading science and technology university. And then not far away is JPL, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory. All of the missions that NASA does to Mars um, are essentially headed there. And that's within a few miles of the brewery. So we have a lot of people who work in Pasadena, either at Caltech or at JPL. I guess it was probably in the spring, and this was at our kids' school. They do fundraising stuff. So we put up kind of a gift basket, but we also put up name a beer as a prize that, that could be bid on. So to our complete luck, the guy that won is heading one of the phases of the Mars sample return project. I'm not a scientist, so I'll give you the dumbed-down version of this. Essentially, a ship is flown to Mars, it lands, it gets samples of, I'm assuming, it's a rock and stuff, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then it blasts off from Mars, meets up with another ship that then transports that sample back to Earth. Now, this isn't blasting off for another few years, but they're obviously working on it right now. So this guy, he's on the surface phase. The surface phase meaning what's happening on the surface of Mars. And he won this and he was uh, he wanted to do something for his team on the surface phase of the Mars Sample Return Project. So he wanted to name a beer after them. So that's what we did. We did the Mars uh, Surface Phase IPA. And it was like one of our fastest selling beers of all time. The JPL people came for a happy hour and completely took over the brewery space, which was awesome. Um, yeah, so that was that was a total win on every on every side. It just shows what the power of stories in, in everything. Like, um, you know, I, I run a couple of businesses, nothing to do with brewing. And, you know, I was hearing today, uh, this week about how powerful stories are with brands and just that you know that because there was a story attached to the beer it meant all the guys from jpl wanted to come down and celebrate and and then the local community want to know well, why is it called that and it, it just spreads yeah. doesn't it and that's a great example also of how that's something that a big brewery a big national multinational brewery they can't do that or they can't do it in the same way can they no not at all for some of the beers we'll pick a day or a weekend where we'll do a dollar donation per pint my wife works in public education, so we typically choose public education as I was our recipient. But that's another way of doing it, right? Is, is that people, they come out, they get to have a beer, they get to feel good, and part of their beer is going to, uh, to an organization that they can support. Yeah. I, at this point, I need to give a, a plug to a podcast, that uh, a former guest of on this podcast called Emma Inch. She's a very uh, quite famous uh, beer critic and writer in the UK. And she's got a podcast called Same Again, which is all about the the intersection between beer and mental health. And she's made the point in, in her podcast about what is overlooked sometimes is the vast amount of positive stuff that beer, that pubs and um, 
breweries like yourself, tap rooms do in the community, not just raising money for charity, but also being that that space where people can have a conversation or people can raise money for the local community. So, yeah, I think that just you making that point reminded me. So I would ask everyone to have a listen to that podcast. It's called Same Again, and you can find it wherever you are, wherever you find your podcasts. Mm. Right. There are so many questions I need to get through with you, John. Because yeah, keep it going. I, and then, yeah. If I ramble, yeah. cut me off. Okay. Okay. The name. Okay. We've got to talk about the name. Yeah. So wild, right. wild parrot. Talk me through it. Yeah. 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 The quick answer is that we have many flocks of feral parrots around here. The story that we that I researched and that has been other people have kind of confirmed it. Approximately a mile from the brewery, there was a, a store, kind of a home center that sold plants, but also had an aviary in it. So they had uh, birds in cages. And in the late 50s, it, it caught on fire. And a guy was there and he released parrots. So they wouldn't burn up. And those were kind of the the Adams and the Eves of the uh, the flocks of feral parrots in our area. Wow. So you, it's quite a common sight to see just lots of wild oh, parrots yeah. around Pasadena. Yes. Oh, and um, they have a very distinctive sound. It's kind of, it's, I, I describe it as almost like a robotic dinosaur, but okay. you have to hear <laughs> to understand it. And they, they, they're very particular about the times they fly around. So around here, you hear them early in the morning. So say 7 a.m. Then they go elsewhere during the day. I think I've seen them in maybe the LA area. And then they come back here in the evening. So you'll hear them overhead and you'll see a flock of parrots is called a pandemonium, pandemonium <laughs> parrots. So you'll see these pandemonium parrots. It'll be over a hundred of them flying overhead and they're screeching away. And they're these green parrots with these shocks of red feathers right across the top, red, red crown parrots. And that's giving you the Those logo other as well, right? hasn't it? That, that, that's that the, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is a great yeah, logo yeah. as well. Have you ever had a wild parrot at wild parrot? Has that happened? We had uh, no, a woman called me up and asked me if I wanted one. Um, I'm not really an animal guy. As, as my, we named our, our brewery after animal. I'm not really an animal guy. Um, <laughs> Actually, what I, and what I learned since then is that these these things live like seventy years. So you have to put them in your will and pass them down to to your wow. descendants. Okay. Uh, so I, I politely declined the parrot, but she brought it in. It was it had a broken wing, so it was never going to be a wild parrot. But it just sat on her shoulder, and she fed it little nuts for an hour, and people took pictures and all that kind of stuff. So yes, we have had wild. We have had. I guess it's not a wild parrot. We have had parrots inside the uh, brewery. Okay, that's great. Right, okay, I'm glad you cleared that up. But it's a lovely name. And actually, as you were saying that, I like the idea that they're long living, 70 years, you know, it gives you a sense of longevity for your brewery that you're here to to stay. (laughs) I think that's a good sign. It's a good omen. Right, I want to take you back to home brewing because I'm a home brewer and it's something that I got into during the pandemic. Yes, that's me. I am a cliche, but I've kept it going. I love the, the creativity of it, the fact that, you come out of this hobby with something amazing that you can share with your friends. It doesn't feel like wasted time. It feels like relaxing time, but it's, it keeps your brain occupied just enough that you forget about everything else in your life, but you're not stressed about the process itself. That's why I think it's such a mm-hmm. such a great hobby. Now, are any of these things kind of ringing true for you? What what got you into home brewing to start with? Oh, it was my buddy Jose and I wanted to just make beer. You know, yeah, yeah. I think you just wanted to see what you could do. You know, it's yeah. uh, if you like beer, it's kind of a natural progression to see if you can make it. And you know, you get a lot of customers that talk about their homebrew, and some of them drop it by, and some of it's really bad. But you know, <laughs> when you 
when you start off, you, you start off with the extract kits and then you kind of work your way into the all grain stuff. And it's fun, you know, and you can, you can make your system as complicated or as rudimentary as you want. Mine stayed rudimentary the entire time. Actually, my brewing system at the brewery today is very, is extremely manual. And then you get to brew the beers that, that you like. That was true as a, at home as it is at the brewery today. Home brewing was great. I haven't done it since we opened the commercial brewery because I do not have the time. So my kegerator is, is sitting empty right now. Oh, shame. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but <laughs> but I, you I have, still have the equipment. You have the ultimate homebrewing setup in that you have your own brewery, which is basically like, um, it's like a kid growing up with a train set and then just getting a train and then just driving <laughs> it down the railroad. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, and, and that's one of the things I like about it is that there is this, there is a path that you can navigate from homebrewing to what you're doing and it's a path you've navigated okay like you say you know there's a lot of permits and you've got to be prepared for that but it is possible so has that journey from home brewer to professional brewer to you know taproom founder brewery founder have you kept your passion for brewing or has it become a bit of a job now that's an interesting question i I have so little time to kind of reflect on this kind of stuff because it is such a all-encompassing you know owning a brewery of our scale is like all encompassing. Yeah, reflecting back, that's you know that's a fascinating question. No, I, I love brew days. I get there early in the morning. I guess I should I should specify. So we're co-located with a coffee shop. Our space is a separate business, but we share the space, which helps a lot with rent because we're in an ex- inexpensive area. So I'll get it, I'll get in there at like 6 30 in the morning and, and get going. I'll throw the music on. It's kind of like de- like what you're saying about a homebrew. It's like some downtime. You know exactly what you need to do. No one's gonna bother you because they know it's brewing time, right? Yeah, and then hopefully in a few weeks you got something that tastes good. You still got the passion for it. It sounds like you do. That's yeah. the question. Yeah. yeah, and then and then the, I guess the experimental side, right? So uh, a few weeks ago, God, actually it was just last week. Um, I was up in Northern California in the Bay Area. That's where I'm from originally, and I toured uh, a malting facility. It's the only only malting facility in California. It's all California grown barley, and uh, they malt it in Alameda, which is right across the bay from San Francisco. So I did that because I was like, okay, we're, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary. What are we going to do now? Like, how are we going to how are we going to up our game? And I thought it'd be cool to do a series of beers that are essentially all California-grown barley right. or corn. Yeah. Um, so like that kind of thing, right? And then talking with our staff and our customers, like, what do you guys want? Like, what what would be interesting to you guys? And then putting our spin on it. So yeah, that's that stuff's all super fun. Wow. Yeah. And that's a, that's a great idea. So have you, have you only been going for one year? Did I just hear that right? You've only actually been open yeah. for one year. Wow. Yes. I thought it was yeah, longer. I don't our... know why I got that wrong. So, wow. It really has been like, you're at the start of the end of a long journey, if that makes sense. Like you're only just. Ex- <laughs> totally. Yeah. And so how's it yeah. going a year in? Is it, is it where you wanted it to be better, worse, different? You know, tell us what's your one year review. I can tell you that uh, we are not losing money. I can yeah. tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> We're, we're paying me a, a meager salary, which from talking to other people, we're in great. We're in, that's great yeah. after one year. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I owe it all to the, what I was talking about earlier, the Tom Hennessy's business systems. And, and, and you know, we, we do zero distribution. All of our beer is sold to the taps. We've got a couple staff members that are just like the best. When they start coming up with ideas on their own and doing things on their own to help the brewery, it's like, oh my God. It's like when your kids, like, I don't know, clean up the room without you saying something it makes you feel like you've got you've gotten somewhere that you've yeah. found people and then you and then you really don't want to lose those people because you realize how valuable they are one of our bartenders she's been with us for the full year and uh she's that avid runner and she 
saw that there was a run club hosted at a like a bar basically so she was like hey we should do a run club and i was like yeah like tell me how i can support that and it's grown and now so last night it's every thursday and we had 30 we have 35 people show up go for a run come back and then drink a ton of beer it happens every thursday it's like it's the greatest thing <laughs> yeah that's brilliant i saw that when uh, when i was doing some research i saw the run club thing because that's um that's something that you get quite a lot over here um you know oh. go for a run from a pub do a loop back to the pub and and then have have drinks afterwards and you know i think people feel like they've they've earned their beer having gone yeah. some of some of the equations don't really seem to add up like you know, we'll, we'll <laughs> no. run for a mile and then drink five pints you think no maybe not but um <laughs> yeah it's a great thing isn't it it's and it's those are two two powerful community things running mm-hmm. together and drinking together combined so you're just getting double double the value that's great and totally. that was her idea that was her idea i had i had no idea it was a thing and now like these people they're like friends outside of the run club if it's someone's birthday someone brings in a cake i mean it, it is yeah it, it's done exactly what you would hope something like that would do yeah yeah that's brilliant right i'm going to go back to something you mentioned earlier because you said about how your homebrew setup was really rudimentary and then you've kind of echoed that in how you set up the brewery so you know it's time to geek out a little bit i i know some of the listeners really like to hear this stuff so talk us through your setup and yeah. and how why you decided to do what you did and and yeah just talk us through it so we got a seven barrel system the brew house is the oil kettle stacked mash tun on top of the hot liquor tank the hot liquor tank is is actually passive we don't have it has space for heating elements but we haven't done that it came down a bunch of it to cost but also i'm comfortable doing things mainly from the homebrew side of things i know a lot of a lot of breweries have touch screens where you can you know you can basically press a few buttons and get through a bunch of the steps by themselves that makes me nervous <laughs> not kind of understanding how the whole systems are working so with us you know i've got essentially two pumps I've got the pump on a cart, which does 90% of the work. And I've gotten a pump that I use for sparging and uh, helps a little bit with transferring cold water through our heat exchanger. But everything else, I'm just, it's just, it's fittings and hoses that I'm just constantly rotating around. So a, a brew day, get there at say 6.30, going in at about 7 a.m. And then depending on the beer, usually finishing full fermenter by about 1230. So whatever the math on that is, say five and a half hours, and then another like five hours of cleanup. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but brewing that's, is that's like nonstop. That's what yeah, we yeah, yeah. early on. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of inefficiencies in it because the, the hot liquor tank is passive, you know, so I'm, I'm everything I'm heating, I'm heating the cans in the kettle then transferring the hot liquor tank. Our groundwater here is really warm. So I've dedicated one of our four fermenters as to being a cold liquor tank. So that's that one's never in use as an actual fermenter. I just chill down seven barrels worth of water. That's that's the perfect amount to knock out the seven barrels of beer in about 25 minutes. And, and the entire brewing area is less than 300 square feet. So the brewing area is uh, essentially right in the middle of the tap room. Yeah, you can see it in the photos. Any, anyone that's, yeah. it, it's well worth, if you're, in, which I'm sure you are enjoying listening to, to John talk about all of this stuff, it's worth going to uh, onto the Wild Parrot Brewing uh, website. It's easy enough to find if you just Google Wild Parrot Brewing Company, chuck in Pasadena if you have to, and it'll come up and there's a little kind of reel of photos. And one of them, you can see very clearly that the brewery setup, the literal brewing equipment is almost in the middle of the seating area, isn't it really? Yeah, no, it's, it's so close. It actually makes me nervous a little bit because the uh, the glycol, <laughs> glycol hoses, if you were a real a real jerk, you could grab it from the seating area and just like rip it off the tank. 
it has obviously not happened yet, but um, yeah. yeah, no, that, that, that was, uh, that was a design idea that our architect came up with. It took me a little bit of time to get comfortable with it because there are inefficiencies. It's detached from our cold room. So typically you would have your brewery right next to the cold room. So you can essentially tra be transferred to serving tanks. But, but for us, I have a little cubby hole in a wall and we block off an area that's in the tap room um, and then just run hoses across the floor to transfer beer. So there's inefficiencies like that. But the brewing system is right up against the front facade. The front facade is, a, is the major commercial boulevard in Pasadena. The Rose Parade, which is very famous, goes within 40 feet. The, the brewing tanks, 40 feet away, I was the, the parade's right there. So right. people walking down the street can see all the, the the setup. People driving down, I try to but shine lights helps, on the right? tanks. That yeah. helps with um, with footfall. Yeah. People, you know, it's obvious that you're a brewery because they can see the equipment right there, and it must draw people in, right. or at least make make them make a mental note, thinking, "Oh, I, I must go for a beer there." Yeah. Yep. Totally. Talk me through some some recipes because you, I mean, you seem to have a really good selection on at all times, and. Are you brewing everything yourself or is, or have you got people helping you out? Are these all your recipes and you're brewing everything? Is that how it works? Yeah. Yeah. All my Love recipes, I'm, I'm brewing everything. Yeah. Like I said, we're a seven barrel system and we do a high percentage of our beers or lagers. So right now I think we have, starting tomorrow, we'll have nine beers on tap. Six of those nine beers will be lagers. Is that uh, just American because that's what people want? It's what I want, <laughs> but it's also what people want. You know, and it's funny that it's, you know, I, I think I've got, I've got rather simple taste. Our top sellers, West Coast IPA, some sort of pale lager. So we have an American lager on and we have a, uh, a Pilsner on. So one of those two beers, the surprise winner was our fruited wheat beer. So on Monday I brewed another one because I, we fully ran out of that. I had no idea how popular that beer was going to be. See, that's um, interesting because so yeah. that's two very different beers. An American lager, which you know, typically will be a very, very crisp, quite pale, not not going to have a huge amount of flavor in it, but be very refreshing and very drinkable. That's kind of what American lagers do. And, and it's brilliant. And well, I love an American lager. But then to go to a fruited wheat beer, I mean, that's, that's a yeah. big change. And yet that was very, it, it fascinates me that those two things, which are completely different beers would be your two bestsellers. Yeah, I, I think it maybe it speaks to kind of the the broad variety that is our customer base. So we have, we're in a neighborhood area. It's actually, so I'm at home right now. The brewery is two blocks from us. So this is our neighborhood also. And so it's, you know, we got a lot of families. We get students from Caltech. We get old people. Because of that, there's not, it's not like some breweries where it's, you know, seven different hazy IPAs and those are all the best sellers. We can do two IPAs and it's no, no problem. Now, a lager is, from a home brewing point of view, a lager is quite, is, I think, the hardest to get right. There's a lot that can go wrong. There's not really anywhere for off flavors to hide. So, so I've got a batch lagering at the moment. And I think it's going to be the first lager that will actually taste how I want it. But it has been a struggle. So, you know, for the home brewers out there, obviously, you've, yeah. you've seen it all. You've been a home brewer and now you're a professional brewer. You know, what's the key to getting a lager right? Yeah, I think there's a few things. Uh, so I can tell you about a little bit about our process. First thing is oxygenating the hell out of the wort. So in our setup, you know, we've got our heat exchanger, which we for all beers, we're knocking out to 70 degrees, lager or ale. But we're throwing uh, four liters per minute of oxygen through a stone as it's coming out of the heat exchanger, then into the fermenter. So we're, and then we're starting everything at 70 degrees and over 24 hours ramping down to 50 degrees. 
ish plus or minus, right? When I come in the next day, that guy's going, you know, a typical lager is fermenting out in about say five, five or six days, giving it a diacetyl rest for a day or two. We don't have the time pressures of, of distribution. I can be a little bit more fungible on timelines. I like to lager it, you know, for in a perfect world, a month, sometimes three weeks. Our Martin, I brewed that one way in advance. And that guy got to lager for two months. The, the fermentation schedule, the temperatures, the oxygenation, all that. And then our, our system boils hard. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, when I show it to people, it's, it's terrifying. They get boil overs are, that's like your worst nightmare. Especially um, when your brewery's my, right in the middle of your seeing area. You don't want oh my to God, yeah. Like, like, our, <laughs> yeah, we had a, the, the second brew ever I had a, wasn't even paying attention, had a boil over and, and then, you know, clean up the huge mess. Uh, that's not really much of a problem at home. I never had a boil over at home, but getting a really, really strong boil, I think also helps out. Yeah. No, they're, they're very strong tips. And it's interesting, like this batch that I'm doing at the moment, it's the first time I've done a diacetyl rest properly. It's the first time I've lagered properly. It's just because it's, I haven't really had the proper temperature control and the space to do it, whereas I have now. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to, to what it tastes like. So, wow. Okay. It's been great to hear about your your process, your equipment, and but also the story behind the brewery as well. I think we, you know, we'll r- wrap it up now. But one thing I wanted to ask you at the end is, and I know you've only been going a year. Mm-hmm. You know, I asked about the hardest moment. And now I'd like to ask about the moment that's kind of brought you the most joy is there is there a particular moment yeah. where you thought wow yeah this is really what i wanted to to create yeah sure so last january we had a band that had played for us and then they wanted to do a, a kind of a second show somehow social media caught fire on this one and we and we got the mayor to show up and we had this band playing it was bonkers we there was standing room only standing room as in like Everyone's like this, right? Everyone's pushed together like you're getting on, getting into a sporting event or something like that. Seeing all that, how much fun everybody was having. It was the community side of things. Seeing, seeing people enjoying the space, having a good time. It was all like a lot of people who I recognize from, from the neighborhood. That was the win right there. You know, it's, it's like a, it's a reason for people to come who might not come all the time. That, that kind of stuff. Well, look, it's been so good to speak to you. Thank you so much for giving us your time because, you know, you're about to go and and open the brewery up. I'm going to add you to the ever-growing list of breweries that I will visit one day. I guarantee it. And (laughs) I'd also like to challenge any of the worldwide Nabbao Brews listeners family to go in. You're probably going to see John behind the bar or he'll be around the back. And I think if you go in and say, I heard you on Nabbao Brews, then... Uh, you might get you might get a free half pint. You'll definitely get a smile out full of you. Full, full pint, pint. Used, full yeah, full pint. pint. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Wow, what a deal I've just got for you. So don't worry, we haven't got that many <laughs> listeners. It's not it's not gonna be a problem. <laughs> cool. John, it's been an absolute pleasure and I wish you all the best with it. And I mean, I don't think you're gonna need any luck because it just looks like the most friendly fantastic community focused brewery that is also making incredibly good beer, and that comes across loud and clear. So Congratulations on being a fantastic brewer more than anything else. And thank you very much for coming on Natvar Brews. Awesome. Pleasure is all mine. Thanks a lot. A massive thanks to John Jackson from Wild Parrot Brewing Company for giving me some time and just explaining the full story behind what sounds and looks. If you go online and, and have a look, just like an incredible brewery, an incredible place to go and have a beer. I love the way that he 
explains how it it came from passion, but also it's just got that real business now and making sure that he did it the right way, took his time to do it the right way, went and got trained. I really enjoyed that interview and, and thanks to John and also a big thanks to Ransom, who is a previous guest on the podcast. His episode is called Beery Conversations with an Alien, so you can check that out. Ransom is uh, the person that put me in touch with John uh, because Wild Parrot Brewing Company is, is close by to him and, and he can be seen sometimes going in there for a beer. So I hope John and Ransom managed to work out who each other are. And I would love it if some listener to this podcast goes in and claims that free pint uh, just by saying that they heard about the brewery on Nat Burberry's podcast. So what is there else to tell you about? I'm about to go out to go off on a work trip to India, which is incredibly exciting. And I hear that there is a very exciting and growing microbrewery scene in Mumbai, which is the first city that I'll be visiting. So I'm not there for long. And I have got lots of work stuff to do, but if I could possibly squeeze in a little trip to a couple of microbreweries, I will try and do that. And of course, I will report back on the next episode. The next episode, we are in the plan. We, I say we, it's just me. I'm in the planning of, uh, I'm trying to get away a interview with a couple of political reporters in Europe. Now, this may sound quite odd, but it was a tweet I spotted or an X, whatever they're called these days about how there's a party, a political party in Austria, that is currently polling very high. That is a, it's a beer party. It has some pretty, pretty bizarre policies, which are all linked to beer. So, including they want to ban Radler, which is um, an interesting, interesting one. Now, I, I don't know much about Radler, other than it is a, it's like a kind of continental version of Shandy, as far as I can work out. I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Anyway, they don't like it. They want to ban it, and that's part of their policies. And they are picking up votes or potential votes. They're they're picking up popularity in the polls. That's what I love. I love an episode where we take a slightly odd angle to beer. So that would be a really good episode because that tweet that I replied to actually got quite a few replies from other people saying, "Oh, and you could speak about this if you're doing politics and beer and this and this and this." There's lots of angles. So if I can try and get that away, then I will. And potentially that could be on a November episode or December. As ever, good conversations and good people, and that's what it's all about. But until we have another episode, my usual sign-off, have a great life, be nice to each other, drink good beer, and I will see you next time.